Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. any of this lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Rock music has always had an edge, but what happened when musicians decided to stage a spiritual rebellion? I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. We dive into rock and roll and the occult for this Halloween edition of Sound Opinions. And we'll review the new release from the always bewitching Stevie Nicks. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later in the show we'll review the eighth studio album from Stevie Nicks, who of course also is a member of Fleetwood Mac. Greg, this is a collection of new versions of some old songs, including a few that are about that fabled relationship between Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham. He was talking about that when he was on our show. Yes, when Lindsey Buckingham was on the show, he acknowledged that even though the relationship has been dead for over 30 years, it really hasn't been. There's still a spark there. They're still singing songs to each other on stage. It just doesn't go away. But before we talk about that new album, we've We've got some music news. Greg, if that guitar arpeggio sounds familiar, you may be thinking it's Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. It is familiar, but it's not Stairway to Heaven. It's the 1968 instrumental by the band Spirit, Taurus, which is at the center of a lawsuit between the heirs of Spirit bandleader Randy California, a.k.a. Randy Wolf, and Led Zeppelin. Recently, in court in Philadelphia, the judge refused to throw the case out of court. He's going to let it go forward. And he refused to grant Led Zeppelin's request that the venue be changed to the West Coast, not Philadelphia. So this thing is moving through the courts an astounding 43 years after Zeppelin recorded and released Stairway to Heaven. What's interesting is that there's a three-year statute of limitations to file a lawsuit if you're claiming that somebody ripped off your song. Here, in fact, there's a a basis in history. In late 68 and 1969, Zeppelin performed with spirit. So they had the ability, they would have been in the position to have heard this song, Taurus, and perhaps borrowed some of it, not all of it. It's the very beginning of Stairway to Heaven. There's a lot of Stairway to Heaven that comes after it, right? But because of the three-year statute of limitations, the first 40 years of profit for Stairway to Heaven are inaccessible to the heirs of Randy California. If they win the lawsuit in 40 years, 40 odd years, $562 million has been generated by Stairway to Heaven. It means that Stairway to Heaven still rakes in $13 million a year. 
Greg, there was an excellent legal analysis of this case in Forbes magazine that charted the issues and what somebody has to uh, prove if they're claiming that their song was ripped off by a group in another song. The author pointed out that Led Zeppelin has settled many times in the past with artists who they kind of paraphrased in their music. Whole Lot of Love, Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, The Lemon Song, Dazed and Confused. This probably will eventually be settled out of court. But there was more Led Zeppelin news. Yeah, there was, Jim. I wasn't aware of the fact that the members of the Beatles and the members of Led Zeppelin had a lot of intersection uh, during the 70s. But Paul McCartney has just revealed that there was, in fact, at least one collaboration between himself and John Bonham of Led Zeppelin on a track called Beware My Love. It's one of McCartney's better-known tracks from the mid-'70s. He's reissuing a uh, Paul McCartney and Wings album, Wings at the Speed of Sound, that includes a version of Beware My Love with Bonham on drums. And it's a pretty cool variation of, of the track. It's very distinctively Bonzo bashing away at the drum kit there. Here's a little bit of Beware My Love from McCartney and Wings. Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Greg Cott, he's Jim DeRogatis, and that's Ozzy Osbourne, one of the kings of the music underworld, singing about Aleister Crowley, that uh, poet, novelist, and noted occultist who's been name-checked, he's been celebrated, explored in hundreds of rock songs. Now, Crowley is just one example of how the occult has influenced rock and roll, or how it saved it, and that's according to author Peter Biebergall. His new book is called Season of the Witch, and the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, and that's a perfect topic on this Halloween. Greg, the occult's trickled into pop music since the earliest blues recordings at the beginning of the last century. That evolved into the hoodoo-inspired sounds of Elvis Presley, the mystical references to the East in the music of the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, and even the Illuminati imagery in some modern hip-hop. So where does all this come from? Let's welcome Peter Biebergall. Peter, thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Thank you so much to you both for having me here. You write in the introduction, setting up this very interesting genre history, 
that, quote, at pivotal moments in its development, rock musicians and their audiences together made an almost unconscious pact to expand their consciousness and push beyond the restraints of traditional American music and its underlying spiritual identity. So we have both musical innovation and a spiritual quest. I guess the place to start is tell us what you mean by a cult before we start talking music. That's a very good question, and it's a very loaded word. So you can imagine even proposing something like this. I knew that people have so many different understandings of what preconceived understandings of what this word means. And so particularly if you are either a believer in these things or maybe you are of a religious persuasion that sees anything related to the occult as being belonging to the realm of the devil – or maybe you're a full-on skeptic that sees any discussion of the supernatural or the occult as being just mere woo and, and silliness. But I want to talk about in the book, and what I try to talk about in the book, is something a little bit grander, which I call the occult imagination. And the occult imagination is all the ways in which people have come to understand what it means to have a particular kind of practice that usually seems to be in opposition or a little bit different from normal or normative Western ways of trying to have a relationship to God. So this could include things like tarot cards or spells or particular kinds of rituals or divination, the I Ching. And I even want to broaden it to talk about things like Eastern mysticism and forms of meditation and yoga, mainly because many in the West see those kinds of practices as somehow being, quote, alternative or occult when really they're just the normal practice of, say, something like Buddhism or Hinduism. Sure. Well, you go from the very start connecting rock and roll and its precursors, uh, blues specifically, to, say, non-traditional realms, you know, uh, non-rational areas of thinking. That whole idea of connecting the West African trickster god to Robert Johnson at the crossroads with the devil, probably the yes. most enduring myth. I, I really think the, the Robert Johnson myth, Peter, is sort of the cornerstone in, in many ways of what rock and roll became. Um, it is. And you draw it further back. So explain a little bit about how the blues drew on these West African traditions for a lot of its subject matter. Well, you have to go even back further than that. And this was what was so surprising to me. And, and really, it illuminated so much when I started to research this and to see that when we look at the earliest forms of American popular music, and we trace those from the blues to gospel, um, really to the slave spirituals, um, we see that the slave spirituals themselves were built out of what the slaves knew as a way, as how to worship. So slaves are brought here from Africa, and they're kind of you know forced indoctrination into Christianity. And for them, it made sense. For many, it made sense in some ways because it offered them a kind of vision of a salvation out of this terrible lot that they found themselves in. But they still brought with them kind of a genetic and sometimes an oral tradition memory of the kinds of religious practices that they had in Africa. And these could still be today described as sort of pagan or animistic or polytheistic forms of worship. And so the slaves, though, even though they were indoctrinated into this Christianity, they still needed to worship in ways that made sense to them, not their white owners. 
they actually met in secret in what were then called hush arbors or hush harbors, um, often in the woods at night. And while what they were expressing was in many ways the Christian values that they were taught, because this is what gave them hope, the ways in which they 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 sang these songs and the ways in which they expressed this through their rituals draws directly from these ancient African animistic and pagan traditions, the way in which they moved around in a circle, what we call the shout, and and all these kinds of things, particularly the shout and some of the rhythms and, and the intense need for, for drumming and that kind of energy in the music becomes, I think, the, the lifeblood of American popular music and ultimately will find its way into gospel, into the Pentecostal tradition, which is where Elvis... Uh, comes out of, which is where Little Richard comes out of. Peter, I remember the Parents Music Resource Center and Tipper Gore calling out Slayer in the 80s for making occult references as if that was the first time the devil was showing up in popular culture. But you go back to the 20s and 30s and in country music and in blues songs and gospel, the devil is everywhere. It's it's, everywhere. You know, 50 percent of the music was written about the devil. (laughs) That's uh, right. Which is fascinating. And both in a sort of empathetic way, uh, you know, there was fear, but there was also like an embrace that this is part of our world as much as God is. And look, look, if you, what's amazing when you think about the slave songs and the slave music and how that all gets developed and, and in turn becomes the, what I think is the, the sort of spiritual antecedent of rock and roll, is that the ways in which they worshipped were what the Christian community would have seen as absolutely in opposition to to what they believed was right and true. And so it's almost as if, and I don't want to speculate, I don't know what the slaves obviously were thinking when they were making this music, but there's a sense that that they somehow knew that they were able to spiritually rebel against the mainstream, against their masters, by using music and rhythms and manners of expression that were considered devilish or demonic or barbaric. We're speaking with Peter Biebergall about the occult's impact on rock and roll here on Sound Opinions. And Peter, let's jump into the 1960s. At this point, we have the introduction of the mysticism of the East into pop music, and it's all tied up with the psychedelic experience. Can you talk about that moment? Sure. Well, I think it it also goes to a new generation of young people looking for ways to rebel against uh, what they saw as a kind of, you know, homogenous... Um, staid way of being, um, a country that seemed dedicated to things like war and and keeping segregation alive and and keeping women down and and they were looking for a way to rebel and looking to the east was a very easy way to find a means of spiritual rebellion. You get this way of of having a spiritual life that feels both exotic and new and strange, but also, you know, is going to make your parents freak out. (laughs) So you get get that. 
And I think there's also something to be said about the intensity of the LSD experience for these young people. The images and ideas of Eastern mysticism seem to be a very good kind of container for the psychedelic drug experience um, that maybe, you know, an angry god doesn't. You know, some bands obviously were serious about the spiritual quest. I never doubted George Harrison's. He, he No, uh, never. There were other bands, though. I, I love one that pops up a few times in your book of that era for whom it just seemed like a pose. I, I, I thought nobody else in the world ever appreciated the band H.P. Lovecraft except oh, yeah. me. Here's a couple of jamokes that just want to uh, seem freaky and they're going to adopt this occult uh, horror mysticism thing. You know, not, not to denigrate that. I mean, they're having fun. But what, what is your take? on bands like that that are just putting on the warlock's robe. Time is gone, standing on a I mean, I blame the Beatles, <laughs> and I blame and I blame Sergeant Pepper's really, right? Because that, I mean, there really was nothing like it at the time, and and it created, I think, in many ways, not only a really amazing path for musicians to take in terms of what was possible, but it created a whole industry of fashion uh, for commercials, for advertisements, and you can imagine these music executives just going bonkers. We have got to get our Sgt. Pepper's album. We right. have got to get these guys dressed up. There was a kind of cynical side to it that maybe these young musicians just kind of found themselves caught up in. And maybe they were also tripping, and maybe they were interested in, in tarot cards, and, and everybody was talking about what's your sun sign. And, and it was very exciting. It was a very exciting time to be thinking about new ways to think about spiritual things and new ways to think about music. But it did launch some some really sugary and awful music. <laughs> and know. probably some bad spirituality. Yes. When you gaze into the sky We'll continue our Halloween trip through rock and the occult with author Peter Biebergall in just a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, Jim and I review the latest album from one of pop music's most spellbinding singers, Stevie Nicks. Ah. Uh. <laughs> 
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we've been speaking with Peter Biebergall. He's the author of Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. Peter, we got to talk about Led Zeppelin. We just heard a little bit of the Immigrant Song, that incredible lead-off track from Led Zeppelin 3. It's noteworthy for a lot of reasons, including the vinyl pressing's references to Aleister Crowley's philosophy of Thelema. And Jimmy Page was a Crowley scholar. What do you make of Zeppelin's relationship with the occult? They are so representative. And I have to tell you, I was afraid to write about them because they really are the 800-pound gorilla. <laughs> and there's so much mystique, so much speculation that it, it felt like an impossible thing. So I really tried to f- really focus on these elements of Led Zeppelin um, that we have been calling all this time the occult. They were very young, you know, <laughs> right, when, they were, right, when right. they were making some amazing music and suddenly making a lot of money. And the world was open to them, and they could explore anything they wanted. And so you have this young guy, Jimmy Page, who suddenly has access to, to money that he never had before. And maybe he's always been interested in the occult. Maybe as a kid, he read some books on it. Suddenly, he decides he's interested in Aleister Crowley. And he has some extra money, so he can buy some beautiful first edition volumes, right? And that opens up a whole conjecture. Why did you love? Why did you just spend thousands of dollars on an Aleister Crowley book? Well, you know he's tw- he's in his early twenties. What's he going to say? So he, in an interview, he's maybe feeling pretty good about himself, and maybe he believes it, or maybe he doesn't. But he says. Aleister Crowley was the great liberator of his time and serves as an example for all young people of how they should do what thou will, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But it's really funny because in a later interview, (laughs) I I love this, in a later interview with Rolling Stone, I think it was about two or three years ago, the interviewer says, come on, Jimmy, what what was really going on with your interest in Aleister Crowley and magic? And he says, why is everybody asking me about Aleister Crowley? Why don't you ask me about how much I love the um, painter uh, Rossetti? You know, why is everybody picking on Aleister Crowley? What I would have said in turn is, 
because you started it. Right, <laughs> you know, right, you, right. You set this up. I, I think that, that, that none of them actually read it because when you actually read well, Crowley, you realize this is right. dense and ridiculous and the stupidest thing I've ever read. You know, it's, do it's what thou will is the whole of the law is kind of catchy. And then his entire output goes right in the garbage after that. That's right. But let's look at this from another angle, okay? So now you have this, though, this interest in this stuff, and you have Robert Plant who, you know, is digging deep into his British Isle roots and the mythology of... of the Druids. Of, of the Druids, right? And yet the music that comes out of that is still brilliant today. The apples are in the valley What I want to argue is that if you were to remove that energy from the story of Led Zeppelin, I truly believe that their music would sound completely different. The energy that evolves out of this need to have an experience, a spiritual experience that, that pushes up against the mainstream, that very easily alerts your audience and the public that you are dangerous, that you are something to <laughs> contend with, that maybe you have secret knowledge that they don't have. All that builds into something that they were able to craft and turn into into what? What we consider, I think many of us consider it to be some of the essential records in the history of rock and roll. And I think sonically, to me, rock is this mongrel creature that takes bits and pieces of various cultures and reincorporates them into, you know, this hybrid form so that you create something new with it. You know, to me, the, the mysticism and the, the sort of sound effect of monks droning in a, in a church or the whole idea of a, the sound of a sitar, you know, Eastern yep. mysticism. That ending up in like a song like Eight Miles High, the introduction by the birds, or Within You, Without You by the Beatles, that just sounds cool and trippy and mysterious. You know, it, you almost don't even need words with it. It just sort of transports you somehow because, you, you know, you you've slap the headphones on and you're on, a, on another planet all of a sudden. It, it just takes you away out of the you know, traditional Western chord structure and you're, you're, you're someplace new. That's right. And it's very real, isn't it? I mean, we all have had that experience of listening, like you said, of listening to music and being transported by it. And music has always been a means through which people have expressed themselves spiritually. Why should it be any different for young people in the 60s to use this music as a way of trying to indicate to the culture that they wanted change and they wanted that change to be bigger than just ending the war, that it, that it needed to extend beyond that. And I think it's really interesting because I think you have, though, especially with the LSD experience, you have somebody like Timothy Leary. And Timothy Leary, I think in many ways, wanted to disentangle, I should say, the mystical the LSD experience and the mystical experience from religion. He wanted to say, look, you don't need religion to have this experience. 
you can just take LSD and you can see God. You don't need rituals. <laughs> you don't need tradition. You don't need mythology. You don't need stories. But I don't think that young people really wanted that. I think that in many ways they wanted the support of some spiritual language. And I think you see that need for spiritual language in, in what I think is really a wonderful artifact of the 60s is the musical hair. Mm. That musical was able to take the sounds and the spiritual concerns um, and turn it into, into high pop art. These were, you know, anybody could go see hair. You don't have to, you know, get dirty with the hippies to enjoy, you know, being in a beautiful theater and, and hearing that music. Um, but I think that, that that musical did a very good job of highlighting that those experiences and the music really needed the foundation of some kind of spiritual, spiritual identity. You are listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we're talking with Peter Biebergall, author of Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. Peter, let's talk about Pink Floyd a little bit, the song Chapter 24 specifically. Yep. You've got Sid Barrett using the I Ching as lyrical content. All movement is accomplished in six stages, and the seventh brings return. The seven is the number of the young light. It falls when darkness is increased by one. Change returns success. Going and coming without a run. Action brings good fortune. Sun. Was there a sense here that uh, Barrett was a huge fan of this stuff, that it was influencing his work? How was he using this sort of material in shaping Pink Floyd's music? I think Sid Barrett is a, is a mirror of the perfect and sometimes dangerous mix of drugs and occultism. So he definitely was somebody who was, I think, you could see it in his personal life, but also in the music. He was kind of desperately seeking some answer to his spiritual or psychic condition. And I think he used LSD as a method or as a means to try to uncover what that was. But I also think he investigated, you know, in the things that he read and the things that he was interested in. And, you know, whether or not he actually ever used the I Ching as a means of divination, we'll never know. But he was certainly inspired by these texts and by these ideas. And, and we can see that come up through his music. But we also get from from the music, again, a sense that not all was well with that young man and maybe not all was well with the culture in some ways because it was a culture that was a post-World War II generation that didn't see the world as a very nice place even though they had been promised one. And so there was a, a need for some spiritual answer and you can see that in the kind of way in which young people in the 60s were just grasping in anything yeah, and of course, everything and the kitchen sink went into Barrett's stew. You even had wind in the willows, right? 
That's right. And I think that there's a wonderful little tie in there because you can also see that whether Wind in the Willows has a very strange chapter where the two characters suddenly meet Pan, the god of the woods there. And there's no indication that he's ever going to be part of the book again. Nothing ever leads up to this. But there's a, a sense that, at least for that writer, that that the natural world is inhabited by by this spirit. mentioned Led Zeppelin, the Battle of Evermore, you know, the, the, the whole notion of the dragon, the dark dragon of darkness uh, imagery in, in Robert Plant's lyrics. And then you've got a band like Coven from right around the same time period, which couldn't have been more overt in its embrace of, of Satanism. You know, it's yes. even, even uh, you credit them with uh, being the first band to sort of flash the devil's horns as kind of a, a symbol of what they were all about. The White Witch of Rose Hall the devil she could call Robert's love then died The blame man he denied But the father Of the dead slave girl Casted any From his world It definitely speaks to the mood also of the 19... 19- the early 1970s, you see this turn away from the pretty floral mysticism of the hippies. Some people lay that historically at the moment of Altamont, at the concert at Altamont, Rolling Stones concert, where uh, the person gets stabbed by the Hell's Angel, that that was, the sh- they say, the shuddering of the 60s, right? And then on the other side, you have Manson. The war is not ending. All that energy and protesting and meditation didn't end the war. And I think that a band like Coven, again, very smartly was able to tap into the mood, the spiritual mood of the pop culture and said, let's not hide it and, and try to subvert it. Let's just put it out there. We are Satanists or we are witches and we are going to cast our spell on the culture with our music. And they actually – one of their songs is a black mass as it were. Mm. Um, they were also part of though the – this kind of, I think, very wrong marriage that happens in the pop culture of associating Wicca and the history of witches with Satanism. Mm-hmm. Really uh, two very different historical developments, but something very easy that the pop culture could pull together um, and make it seem as if anybody involved in the supernatural or interested in the occult was somehow a Satanist. We've been talking a lot about Satan and all such fun things for Halloween. We haven't talked much about metal because Zeppelin really was hard rock, not metal. So from Black Sabbath all the way up to Slayer, you know, these satanic images are part of metal. But, you know, in its very first review of the first album in Rolling Stone, the great Nick Tosh's dismissed Black Sabbath as the sound of bubblegum Satanism. (laughs) It was a great (laughs) line, right? To what extent are people serious about the occult and Satanism in metal? And to what extent do you just think it's all been rather uh, cartoonish? I think for the most part, I would say it's a very smart um, marketing tool. It's, again, it's a way of, of 
saying very quickly that you are something that your parents are if, – if you are a young person and you listen to our music, your parents will be afraid. <laughs> they will be angry. And so we're going to use this imagery as a way of evoking a sense of rebellion. And I, and I want to return to this idea of how rock and roll and metal in particular in this case uses this dark occult imagery and in, and in this case often Satan and, and the devil as a way of – of suggesting a spiritual rebellious instinct of saying that we are going to be in opposition to what is mainstream. We are going to be in opposition to what people tell you is right and wrong. We are going to carve out our own morality. Mm. And that's a very inspiring for teenagers, right, to say, wait a minute, I, I want my own identity. I don't want to go to my parents' church. I don't want to be bar mitzvah. I don't want this. I don't want that. I want a new way of understanding what it means to be in the world. And, and here's this music that's very powerful and very evocative that comes along with it, all this very dark and wonderful imagery that in many ways is, is pulled from the very same comic books and movies that these young people are exposed to. Better way to say I won't do what you tell me than to say that you worship the devil. Hail Satan, yes. <laughs> uh, Peter, in your book, you don't just talk about traditional rock and roll and metal, but even pop artists like Madonna, who's used symbols of Kabbalah and who's played around with Catholic imagery. I'm also interested in how the occult, the, the devil and Masonic references yes. have made their way into hip-hop. Well, it's very interesting because you have, even within my understanding, within rap and hip-hop culture, there is a belief that the record industry, basically a white industry as it were in terms of you know who's running the show um, in terms of the executive side, is somehow part of this Illuminati or this great conspiracy. And I think that musicians like Jay-Z who know that this isn't true still love to use those symbols because they know that, again, it's shorthand. It's a way to alert your audience that you are somehow in the know or part of something secret. Conspiracy theorists screaming Illuminati. They can't believe this. My skill is in the human body. He's 6'2". How the fuck he fit in the new Bugatti? Uh, oh, fuck it, you got me. Question religion, question it all. Question existence until them questions are solved. Meanwhile, it's Heretech. I'll be out in Marrakesh, Morocco, smoking hashish with my fellowship. What is so evocative about these ideas? What is it about occult imagery, occult beliefs um, that has just really uh, captured the popular imagination? And what is it about rock and roll and pop music that has become such a perfect vehicle for expressing those ideas and those images? Well, Peter, you sent us a great playlist of your favorite occult-influenced songs, and we've shared it at Beats Music. 
But let's go through a couple of the highlights. You got a track on there by the German experimental group Can, and Can was fascinated by Haitian voodoo rhythms. Jockey Leipzig played those wonderful chant drum circle rhythms. Talk a little bit about Can and the occult. Well, I think that they very rightly saw music as a way of transforming consciousness. That, you know, all, a lot of what we've been talking about has been the kind of clothing of all of this. But music is a way of transporting us into having different experiences with our consciousness. Put on the headphones and turn the music up and close your eyes and go. saw that that you could really craft a sound that could transport people that could almost uh, that could be hypnotic and you you add this kind of chanting rhythmic language to it and it sounds like something exactly like what you're saying born out of some ancient tribal religion that was used to do a very similar thing I just want to touch on a couple of contemporary influences that you also cite that are incorporating this kind of imagery uh, visually and also sonically. Sun O brings this sort of metal drone thing forward. You would think that after several decades of exploring these themes, it would become exhausted. But Sun O seems to be adding something new to the palette. Well, I think that they, you know, they both get the fun, whereas, you know, they get on stage and they wear hoods and they have right. fog and they play the down-tuned guitars. But extreme volume. Extreme volume. But these guys, of in most of the underground metal, these guys in particular stand out as true artists. I mean, I think Stephen O'Malley of Sun is a spectacular composer of really orchestral, you know, but using the using the grammar of metal, right, as, as his language, as his way of doing it. again they see that there's something that just gets it just immediately goes right to our unconscious when you when you play with these images and when you play with a music that has i mean maybe sinister is too strong of a word but certainly there's an undertone of something dark or of something hidden of something secret even though when we step back we know it's all just rock and roll in the end but when we again when we allow ourselves to let a band like sun be the stage magician and trick us, you know. I think something magical happens. I think if I want to say anything metaphysical in this book, which I try very hard never to do, but if I want to say anything metaphysical, it's that there really is something transcendent that happens um, between the magician, between the musician and the fan, and between the magician and the audience. You know, that that is is quite remarkable. You also noted the electronic element of this theme, broadcast being a contemporary example, that uh, electronic group out of Birmingham, England. They've actually put out some new material this month with plans to release a full-length album next year. Yes, they lost their lead singer 
a few years ago, and that was a real tragedy. But they really are doing some amazing things. And I think they're part of a whole sort of genre, mainly British genre, which often is called hauntology, I think was a, a term coined by the the British magazine The Wire, which is sort of a, a music that goes to both aspects of British occult culture or a culture, as some people call it. One, the actual history of the British Isles and British folktales and, and British pagan um, history, but also with British television and pop culture that incorporated a lot of those elements, such as Quartermass, which was a very popular show and uh, film series um, in England in the 70s. They really want to show, too, how there's both these ancient things that have been drawn from, but also these very modern ways in which the pop culture continues to express these occult ideas and images. Well, this has been fascinating. We've been talking to Peter Biebergal, author of Season of the Witch, How the Occult Save Rock and Roll. I don't think, Peter, that Greg and I have ever discussed matters of the occult, Satanism, paganism, with so level-headed a guide. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a real pleasure having you on Sound Opinions. Thank you for having me. This has been terrific. For more dark and demonic listening, check out our playlist at Beats Music. And we want to hear from you. Where do you hear the occult and rock? And how's that legacy living on today? Call 888-859-1800. When we come back on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Fleetwood Mac's enchantress Stevie Nicks is back with a new solo album. Why don't white some black capes? The bats have left the bell tower The victims have been bled Red velvet lines The black box The loose is dead Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's a little bit of Stevie Nicks from a new album called 24 Karat Gold, Songs from the Vault. That's the title track, 24 Karat Gold, that we're playing. 
Stevie Nicks, right? Fleetwood Mac went into that band with her lover at the time, Lindsey Buckingham, and they went on to have an amazing run of hit records. Overall, she's participated in 40 top 50 hits as both a solo artist and in Fleetwood Mac, sold over 140 million albums. Everybody remembers rumors in 1977. An interesting anecdote about that particular record is that Stevie Nicks' song Dreams was the only number one single off of that record on a record that sold 40 million copies overall. She began her solo career in 1981 with that album Belladonna. That went on to sell 4 million copies, and a lot of people thought at that time that she had completely outgrown the band. She was becoming a superstar in her own right. Now we've got 24 Karat Gold. It is her eighth studio album. The idea here is that she went back through the vaults, her her archives, looking for songs that she had attempted to record between about 1969 and 87. There are a few even later songs on this collection, but that's where the bulk of this material is taken from, and then recorded new versions of these tracks in recent years. Here's a track from the new album. It's called Hard Advice from Stevie Nicks on Sound Opinions. Another famous friend told me Love doesn't make a clean break Didn't talk about heartache You have to let him go Hard Advice by Stevie Nicks from the new album 24 Karat Gold. Greg, that's one of those tunes where she's talking back in the day to Lindsey Buckingham, newly recorded with a group of Nashville session pros. So these were old demos, most of them from the 70s, 
two from the early 90s that she revisited. She's singing today. Now, listen, I have some problems with Fleetwood Mac. I always have. The uh, excess of its big hit periods, Rumors and Tusk, the kind of wretched nostalgia they have been prone to for the last two or three decades. And there are some silly things about Stevie Nicks, you know, the whole white witch dancing gypsy twirling thing, you know. But look, hard is the heart. I don't even want to meet this person (laughs) who doesn't have some love for Stevie Nicks. And I am not immune. I have loved Stevie when Stevie was Stevie, right? You know. (laughs) But there is nothing like Rhiannon or Edge of Seventeen or Talk to Me on this record. Her voice is going. It's much deeper. It's not as wispy and ethereal. And this notion, we reviewed the Bob Seger album recently, right? And just because Nashville today is being influenced by those sounds doesn't mean it's a good idea for those artists to go to Nashville, particularly in Nix's case. I miss that Celtic folk lilt that is in the best of her material and have Having Lady Antebellum appear on one song and Vanessa Carlton on another and faceless Nashville musicians power the thing, the voice isn't there, the music isn't there, the songs are mediocre at best. There's a reason why they didn't wind up on her earlier seven albums. The Faithful will want to try this record, but it's really a trash it for me. I think the whole idea of excess is what makes Stevie Nicks interesting. I mean, the people that are going to blanch at it and say that's too much, you know, what is with this Welsh witch shtick that she's playing, you know, the shawls, and, you know, they give her a lot of stick for that kind of stuff. I love that. That's what's appealing about her, though. That's what makes her a distinctive personality. That's why she's such an icon, especially to women. She's had such an influence on female rock and rollers for the last 30 years. It can't be denied. But you're right. There's a reason these tracks were in the vaults for so long. You have to say that when she was working with Buckingham, he had this ability to sort of take these kind of really unshapely but very creative pieces of music and turn them into pop songs. And his presence is missed on this record as a collaborator, and he was a great collaborator for her. I think she'd be the first one to admit that. So there's sort of a voyeuristic aspect to some of these songs, as you said. I think that's where the true fascination lies. And I will say there is one... I think great track on this record, a really fine piece of music that I think stands up with some of her better ballads. And it's a really stripped-down piece of music. It's Lady with Ben Montench playing the piano on this track, and it's basically just Stevie Nicks, her voice, and that piano, and it's a wonderful track. Yeah, but even that's no landslide. It's not as good as Landslide, and I will say that with a couple of exceptions, this album isn't very good, but I will say try it for that track, Lady Alone. All right, so a try it from you, a trash it from me. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we're going to do an in-depth album dissection of The Wall, Pink Floyd's masterpiece, 35 years later. Sound Opinions is produced by our own Welsh witch, Robin Lynn, along with Jason Saldana, Anthony Martinez, and our intern, Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Oh, oh, Give me 
messages. Hi, this is Josh Rocket calling from Wheaton, Illinois. Just got done listening to the Buried Treasures podcast, and, and, and I loved it. That was a great episode. Um, but wanted to add my own addition to the Buried Treasures, and that is Sturgill Simpson's album, Meta Modern Sounds and Country Music. It is a country album, but I think Sturgill is, is uh, kind of going in his own direction here. It's kind of in, influenced by some outlaw country, specifically, I think, Waylon Jennings, but it has this touch of weirdness and psychedelia to it that I really love and I think makes it stand out. The uh, the first song on the album, Turtles All the Way Down, has lines like, I saw Jesus play with flames in a lake of fire, and we're reptile aliens made of light, cut you open and pull out all your pain. And I don't think you see strange lyrics like that in country music at all. And I think he's 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 going in a wonderful direction. And and I just really love the sound and, and really love the album. So um, so I hope you guys take a listen and enjoy it. Some say you might go crazy Then again it might make you go sane Every time you take a look that old fable Blinded and blinded and it's on opinion first time calling my name's nathan there's this one album by Man Man that just recently came out called On Ani Pond. The album is phenomenal. Man, they got an incredible sound, incredible production, incredible arrangement. Head On's a great track. Uh, the whole album really is just solid through the core. Incredible. So that's my opinion. Hope you guys have a great day. I'm Jason. Uh, I'm an exhibit tech at the aquarium. And uh, I just want to call in one of my buried treasures uh, from a band in Philadelphia called The Extraordinaires. Uh, they have a new album. I don't know if it's already come out. Uh, I already have it because I supported them on Kickstarter. It's called Dress for Nasty Weather. And they're one of my favorite bands. They like telling really interesting stories and. Uh, really great. They have three other albums. I like all of them. They're great. But this one, they kind of do some slower slower things and uh, more, I guess, emotional. When you're up, when you're up you, come down, you come down, then you hide, then you hide in a cloud. I wonder what I can do for you. You get big, you get big then you're small. Thank you. Thank you. I'm waiting on the ground, and I'll be here when you come. 
more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.